This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Journalist Monica Guzman is the loving liberal daughter of Mexican immigrants who voted twice for Donald Trump. Monica is also the chief storyteller for the national cross-partisan depolarization organization Braver Angels, which brings her to the real front lines of a crisis that threatens to grind America to a halt, broken conversations among confounded people. In this episode, CIIS Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Damali Robertson, talks with Monica about her life, work, and her recent book, I Never Thought of It That Way, in which she shares ways for us all to have fearlessly curious conversations. This episode was recorded during a live online event on March 24th, 2022. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. I am so excited to be here with all of you tonight. Monica in particular. How are you doing, Monica? How are you? Ah, I'm doing great. I got I got my glass of water. You know, here in Seattle, sun's going down slowly. It's a good night. Awesome. Awesome. So I'm going to just jump right in. I feel like this is the perfect time for this type of fearlessly curious conversation. I have been looking at the world around me and just kind of... <laughs> I'm really nervous for us. Uh, Between the Supreme Court nominee hearings uh, to what's happening around critical race theory and teaching the truth in schools to legislation, um, anti-LGBTQ and anti-trans legislation, not to mention the war um, with the the invasion of Ukraine. And so... My whole thing is there's a lot happening that shows how deeply polarized we are. And I thought, ooh, this is the perfect time to talk to you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's the perfect time. So my first thing to you is I really just want to ask the big question. How does your book, I never thought of it that way, help us? bridge some of these huge issues and I'm talking about those real life issues like some of the ones I just mentioned yeah I you know when I think about a lot of the examples you just brought up what comes to mind is people not being seen for who they are and for the humanity that is in them so the cover of the book has eyes on it some are open some closed they're all different and the, the beginning problem statement of the book, I've realized, is we're so divided, we're blinded. The division in itself keeps us from seeing each other past the ideological disagreements, which are severe in many cases. There's added animosity. There's added misperceptions across the divide that have been measured There's exaggerations. There's a lot of fear. So how do we build a world where more of us can be seen and can share our concerns and can put them all on the table in a way that our society deserves, that our democratic republic was designed for? Of course, not really knowing where we would all go. I heard just the other day somebody make a really compelling case that we have been through a lot of trauma. And I really hadn't heard it put that way, that when you you think of all the wild events and how close together they seem to be happening, that's trauma on our whole society. So the book helps by presenting what I think is the most powerful tool that we don't 
think about often enough, which is our own curiosity, our capacity to be curious. Curiosity flourishes and requires uncertainty. When we are in times of deep stress, we manufacture certainty in order to be okay and to feel okay. And that makes sense, except when it happens to such a degree that it makes us blind to who other people truly are. Across the political divide, there is a lot of distortion and we're going to have to address it to get to a place where we can work together again, be creative together again as a society, but also on a more individual level where we can have meaningful relationships across deep differences that we know we want. A lot of people are heartbroken and confused by this divide and we can do something about it. We can get more curious. Thank you so much. You know what? I am with you. I am a curious person. I really want to understand the other side. And there's some there's some issues and some things that I think even those of us who consider ourselves curious feel very um, kind of very protective of. And so I want to go to talk about that election in 2016. Right. And I remember that feeling of coming home and being deeply saddened by the outcomes personally and then going to work and going back into the world and meeting up with those folks who are happy right who are excited and for me you know I literally felt well that you know your vote was a vote against my freedoms that's how I felt and you know when you share that your parents voted for Trump and you all still have this loving relationship. I was like, ooh, I want to learn from Monica how she did that. Because, you know, it was hard to talk to people just across from me at work. But I didn't have to go home and sit at dinner with them, you know, and bond. And so I'm curious, you know, that type of division that shows up in our families but also shows up in our world. How do you actually, um, like, see that with curiosity? Because for me, it was really challenging, I have to tell you. Yeah. So I've known my parents my whole life. And uh, it wasn't until uh, the election in 2000 that our vote and our politics seemed to matter very much. That was the year that we became U.S. citizens. So we're all we're, we're Mexican immigrants and um, came over from Mexico when I was about six. In the year 2000, my parents got naturalized and I was 17, so I was automatically naturalized. And I came home one day and plopped my backpack down and looked up and saw a Bush Cheney sign on the billboard over my mother's desk. And that was the first time that I was like, they're Republicans? Now at the time, it was high school, you know, I watched CNN headline news, but I wasn't entirely sure of my own political identity. I just really thought that they would think like I did and the Democratic side just seemed more right and more sensible. And especially because we're immigrants, I had all these, I had all these ideas about that. Now, so we started, the argument started pretty quick. Uh, <laughs> we, we are a fairly unfiltered family. You never don't know where you stand with my mother. It's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> So, yeah, that that's that's happened. But in the presidential campaign of 2015, things really turned up for us. And I would I would go to my mom and I'd be like, Mom, you did not raise me to respect somebody like that. You did not. And, and that was one of the most confounding things to me. It's just like, come on. <laughs> really? And with my father, uh, it was it was different issues, and we can get into it. But it, the heat got hotter with us, and the challenge certainly got much much bigger. Uh, we yelled a lot more loudly, a lot more loudly. And one thing that I think of the analogy is, heat is okay, anger it's fine. It's just about whether it cooks something and doesn't burn something. And we managed to have the heat cook. And and even when we had raged, we ended 
we ended every conversation with some new understanding about each other. And that wasn't easy, but I found myself personally grateful every time. I wasn't gonna change their minds. And I, and I love them deeply and dearly. And I have gotten to the point, we've had so many conversations, that I really can say that I do understand why they voted for Trump. Um, so I'll leave it at that for now. <clears throat> well, I mean, <laughs> you know, there's so many pieces of that that I could parse out, but the one that I thought that was really interesting is that you weren't working to change their minds. Because I think a lot of us are engaged in those conversations to change minds. It's about winning. And even in your book, you talk about the dopamine kind of hit that we get from winning. And so I'm curious about how, how you um, decide not to change, you know, because I know that's what, why we debate to win. So why do you step back? What, what is it about that that you're like, I don't want to change your mind? How yeah. do, tell us about that. Maybe yeah. more of us could do it. <laughs> so it's, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll complicate that a bit because in, in the situation with my parents, there is a deep and resounding trust. Um, there's, there's a deep and very strong relationship. So, so I can say that we do reach the level of, of head-on debate total unfiltered, you know, but, but this, but this, and, and I would be lying if I said that I wasn't motivated by, by an intention to, to convince them. So debate, debate about who is right and wrong is totally possible and can be really cool. The thing is about the trust underneath. We could get to that point because we knew that whatever was said, we'd be okay. The relationship would be okay. A lot of folks who face these opportunities or challenges to go across the divide, it's not with a relationship of deep trust, or at least you come in wondering. And that's the place where when you go straight into debate and you say, you're wrong, you're wrong, here's why. That comes off not as curious, but as condescending. And when you begin with condescension, especially when you haven't necessarily tried to understand where people are coming from. Again, my parents and I have had so many conversations. They know that the intention to understand is always there. But when you, when you come in without that, that part being kind of taken care of, people can tell. People see through it. And nobody wants to be condescended to, uh, what, what ends up happening is that it, it makes people want to push you off and, and entrench themselves even more and affirm their belief about people like you from the other side who just don't respect them, don't listen to them, whatever. So that just, that does, it works when there's a lot of trust built underneath, but not when there isn't. So that's why in a climate of division, the best thing to do is to actually separate wanting to change someone's mind from building trust and understand that building trust comes first and that building trust comes from building understanding. And so, and I, I, I always say too, that you can't understand a mind you're trying to outmaneuver or defeat. You can't do it. It's separate mechanisms. Uh, yeah. And so a lot of us want to put the cart before the horse because we're irritated. <laughs> this is awful. It, it takes, it takes, it takes a lot to do psychologically. It can, but, but technically it doesn't have to be so difficult. Hmm. Wow. I mean, the two things that you bring up there, trust, and then um, almost like the flip side of it is the trauma uh, that you alluded to earlier, or you spoke about earlier. Um, Cause you know, I was thinking about this as I was reading your book, that fight, fight, flight, flee, or fight, fight, flight, freeze, you know, that yeah. whole thing. <laughs> fight or flight, let's just call it that. But I started thinking about that because I thought, you know, I could see where in so many of these instances that mechanism would happen in our, you know, bodies and our brains. And so we're not listening anymore and there isn't any trust. So I wanted to ask you about that. Like, because to me, that's a big 
first step in having these conversations is how do we disarm that that place in us that's afraid when we're confronted with something different? You know, can you say something about that um, and how this factors into your work or expound a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I think it's important to say that I don't really believe, especially in this body of work, right? I don't believe in the prescription that applies to everyone equally here. It doesn't exist. Everyone has their own psychological, emotional, social formula, right? Like situation where for some people, certain conversations across divide are just unimaginable. It's just so difficult. It's not impossible, but it's it's way out there. You know what I mean? And and for others, some conversations are going to be a lot easier. So that's worth saying. The other thing I'll say is that we, we talk about building bridges and talking to folks on the other side. And it can sound like that is the first step, is to go to someone else who disagrees on something that matters and uh, <laughs> try. But it actually isn't. Uh, there are far easier first steps. So uh, one of them, honestly, is the best person you can have a cur- curious conversation with is yourself. So I, I was saying before... Uh, we manufacture certainty at times of, of deep stress. We're all doing it. And certainty is the arch-villain of curiosity because once you th- think you know, you won't think to ask. So as a, result of, as a result of the stress, as a result of many things we've talked about, we have a lot of assumptions that we make uh, about other ideas and about other people. And those assumptions, those thoughts about other people are are in our minds and are in our hearts all the time, even when we're not with those other people. So here's something that that you can do to practice curiosity when you're not ready to actually be with another person and have like an unpredictable, messy, scary conversation. And that is next time you see a headline that represents a perspective that mm, really irks you, you know a lot of people hold. This one is, a, is one a lot of people hold. You know, it's not somebody arguing that you can jump off a roof and flap your wings and fly. Nothing that deviant. But something a lot of people hold. And instead of just going by it or tweeting about how awful it is, you click it, you open it. And as you read, you prime your mind to be curious in a generous way. So you ask yourself questions like, what is the deep down honest concern that people who hold this view are, are trying to express and, and have some need for addressing. What is the concern? And another one is, what is the strongest argument on this side? Those two questions will do a lot to uh, do what, what I think of visually as put a doorstop in the hallways of your mind. When we form a lot of certainty, it's like we're walking through the hallways of our minds and there's all these doors on either side, but they're all closed. They're all closed. So you put down doorstops and you go, well, let me just let me just leave my mind open here. And I've done this a lot with articles that initially ugh, just my gut level thing was like, nope, nope, can't, can't do this. And then I read it with the doorstops and I'll end up going, okay, <laughs> I see the concern here. I don't like it, but I see it. <laughs> Practicing that begins to uh, grind down some of the certainty, soften some of the assumptions. And what you'll find is that as that happens, the idea of approaching someone and having a conversation across difference won't seem quite so hard and scary. Wow. I think I might have to try this on a little bit. (laughs) I mean, there are things I don't read, things I don't I, I just, it feels like too much sometimes, like to t- try to take that on. But the way that you've described it, where I don't have to go up to someone and I can do that, just me and my headline and me and the news story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's worth it. I'll, I'll definitely try definitely try it on. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you talk about, and, and I want to take us to this, uh, the ideas and practices that we probably do every day of siloing, sorting, othering. Uh, in your book, you talk about those uh, things that we do, right? I think that's something that's up for most of us. And you said, and I love this, you described 
sorting, othering, and siloing as uh, an SOS. So a call for help. You know, I wanted you to tell me why you, why you think of those things as a call for help. You know, what about them? Yeah. So SOS is part one of five. So I have five parts to the book. And this first part, SOS, is the only one that really deals with the problem in a really focused way. And the framework that I put around the question, how did we get here? What's going on? Uh, is about these three very natural parts of human nature that uh, affect us deeply and make our lives meaningful, frankly. They're not bad in and of themselves. You add them all together and add, you know, the trauma of these times and you get where we are. So SOS, sorting, that is the very natural human tendency to want to be around people who are like us because it's easier. It's more comfortable. Who wouldn't want to do that? Recently, there's been uh, some pretty incredible uh, reporting and evidence about how much more um, prevalent is this behavior of people moving to different communities across our country because of politics. So uh, not that long ago, we weren't really sure if it was happening. We were hedging. But now researchers are like, yep, it's happening. Here's the data. <laughs> so blue zip codes are getting bluer. Red zip codes are getting redder. Othering. Othering is uh, a term that is often used for the natural tendency to put distance between an in-group and an out-group. The social science research on this is particularly chilling because it turns out you don't even need a meaningful difference to discriminate against an out-group in some subtle way. And when you have a meaningful difference, you discriminate in very non-subtle ways. And then there's siloing. And siloing is basically, siloing's gotten like a serious upgrade thanks to this bad boy. Um, I mean, <laughs> basically, right? Like we have all these laws about you can't choose your neighbors, but you can hear. You can choose your neighbors on the platforms. You can choose what you read, which is a way of saying you can choose what influences your thoughts. You can choose what comes, what inputs come in. And, and why, why shouldn't you? Of course you should. You can design that for yourself. And what's, what's the thing about siloing isn't just the customization and how it sort of amplifies the effects of sorting and othering, you know, unfollow if you disagree. And also, I'm only going to talk to people who, you know, are in this community online or what have you. It's also about the fact that that thing represents a whole new kind of way of moving in the world. We don't wait in line for coffee anymore. We look at our phones. We're not, we're not open to the serendipitous connections of whatever's around us or our environment. So basically all of that is SOS, the call for help. You, you, you put those three dynamics happening to the degree that they're happening with where we are in our society. And you get a society that is so divided, it is blinded. And what we need to do is counteract those very natural tendencies, beginning by being aware of them being aware of them and how they affect our individual lives and asking ourselves questions, you know, like, what do I really think about all this? And how do I know if I'm listening to a lot of the same voices and I haven't really heard the other perspective all that generously? How do I know? How do I know that I'm seeing this issue fully if I'm mostly getting you know, a couple of dimensions, but it's a polygon. In reality, it's a polygon. I'm only seeing two or three sides. Man, and I mean, your point about unfollow, if you disagree, like that kind of moment we're in, um, I think for me, just thinking about it, I think there's a protective factor. Um, there's like a, you know what, I, I really don't have the bandwidth to argue. So let's, uh, let's, dis let's just decouple. I, I see that also that there's a, a cancel culture, right? There's like a, um, if you say something I don't like, we'll just cancel you. And so there's a, a author, Adrian Marie Brown, who has a book, yeah. you will not cancel. I have it. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I don't have that one. I have another one. I have, um, Oh, what's it called? Emergent Strategy? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. She's awesome. And yeah. I, I think I have all her books. And mm -hmm. it, your book reminds me in some ways of that. Let's get back to humanizing one another. Let's get back to seeing one another. Let's get back to 
um, being curious about one another. So I totally see that. I totally see that. Um, but why do you think it's so important for us to keep our hearts open? Because a lot of this is very intellectual and it's about issues. And But, you know, at the core, I'm hearing the humanity in this conversation. So I wanted to ask you about our hearts. Why do you think it's important to do that in this moment? Well, <laughs> I, I guess I begin by thinking about, it is incredible the volume of words and expressions and messages that now surround us. You know, in no time in human history did so many people say so much? We're getting bombarded with it. We're participating in it. It's, it's glorious. And it's happening on platforms where our full humanity doesn't fit. Literally doesn't fit, right? The phone, I text you. That's words. That's some emojis. <laughs> it's an occasional photo. <laughs> but you don't get my voice, you know? You don't... We, there's all these trade-offs on these platforms where, you know, in exchange for the full toolkit of humanity, of human communication, in exchange for our gestures, our voice, what we get is scale. I can talk to thousands of people at once. How cool. We get these amazing trade-offs. But it adds up. It is a trade-off. And the internet basically is a non-place that makes us into non-people. So I think it's important It's important to, to, to be aware of the fact that in the places where we are having the highest volume of our conversations with people, all kinds of strangers, invisible audiences, hearing each other's thoughts, uh, it's places where we're not, we are by definition not fully seen. By definition. We get to choose what we want to billboard out front of who we are. And a lot of times, because of the passions deeply felt for ideas in a time like this, people will put their ideas on the level of their name, right? So if you go to Twitter or some other platforms, you, you might see people do this much more now than they did 10 years ago, um, where it's like, here's my name and here's my cause. And that's it. So here's, here's my concern about that. I mean, there's beautiful things about that. My concern about it is when you conflate ideas with people, it gets harder to see the people behind the ideas. And so if it's an idea that bothers you and you're going to these spaces where the ideas are floating around and you are not accessing the human being because the internet just makes it hard to do that, it's very easy for you to just say, this person is that idea. This person is that horrible idea. I don't want anything to do with this person. They're that horrible idea. That's what they amount to. And it's not like we stop and think about this consciously, but I think it is an unconscious ethic that's out there. And uh, it's not good because it's not true, because it's not real. And, um, you know, we, we, live, we live in this, we work in this wonderful digital space and, you know, and it's allowed, so, it's allowed for us to continue to do so many of these things during a pandemic. It's wonderful. It connects us in so many ways, but it is also remarkable how we are surrounded by information and yet we are so misinformed about each other. And, and that, to me, can only be because we are actually more distant from other humans in some ways than we've ever been. We see their words. We see their ideas. We fight their ideas. But we don't see the people. And we forget that people are a lot more than their ideas. And that the ideas can change. But usually you won't have an impact on how those ideas can change unless you get to know the person. Wow. I mean, there's so much that you said in there, but I love what you said when you talked about people being separate than their ideas and how we're conflating that we're in this moment where you become your idea. And so therefore, if your idea opposes my idea, I oppose you is what I'm hearing you saying. And, and you oppose me and I should right. be afraid of you. Exactly. So we vilify yeah, and we absolutely. do that instead. So the thing that comes up for me, it comes back to the political kind of moment we're in. 
Um, well, we've been in for so many years. It's more than a moment time. at this right. point, right? It's more than a moment. So I don't want to um, say downplay <laughs> that. But I mean, the thing is, is that I am sometimes um, really reflecting on um, some of the ideas that feel really directly harmful to me, to, um, you know, people who look like me, feel like me, my, right? So there are some things around race in particular. So racism and oppression, I, I opened speaking about some of those things. And I really do want to see what's the possibility of understanding beneath those ideas. Uh, it is something that I feel personally challenged with. And, um, you know, and I, I, I do a lot of different work on that. And so I feel like I'm making some headway, but I do think that there are some some moments in your book, for example, when you talked about, um, I, I remember one where it's like uh, someone who voted for Trump voted for them because, voted for him because like he was concerned about taxes, not because uh, uh, he, you know, felt he was had racist ideas or was racist. And there were some other examples like that. And I really you know, would love for you to talk a little bit more about those things living, you know, again, the people and the ideas. So like, how have you in those moments when you had those groups where you had those conversations really seen people separate than their ideas? Because I, I really think we do, I mean, have a hard time with that in particular. So if you could say some more about experiences you've had talking to people where they really did have that concern about taxes or farming or something that many of us are not even thinking about. Yeah. So the, the one that immediately comes to mind is in early 2017, uh, I and my co-founder of the Evergrey in Seattle, and we basically organized in partnership with an incredible person that I'll say more about in a moment, a, a really amazing trip. That I still can't believe happened, but we took 20 people from Seattle down to Sherman County, Oregon, which is the second smallest county in Oregon. It's 1,700 people spread over land that is 10 times the size of Seattle. And it was the county that voted exactly opposite uh, King County, where Seattle is, in the 2016 presidential election. The reason we, we did it was because we had named curiosity as a core value of our newsletter and our community in Seattle. And after the 2016 election, people were like, okay, I want to be curious, but um, real talk, I don't know any Republicans. I don't know any conservatives. Uh, uh, or it would be, yeah, but a apparently a lot of folks who supported Trump this election are more rural. I don't get that. I live in the city. I've been here my whole life. What's up? So one thing led to another and through uh, through the kindness of total strangers in Sherman County who agreed with us that something had to be done. Basically, we partnered with them and and created this this one day event experience where we did a five hour uh, bus ride down for four hours of getting to know each other and having conversations and then the five hour bus ride back. And on the five hour bus ride back, I couldn't hear myself think. <laughs> Everyone who'd gone down from Seattle could not stop talking about everything that had happened. We started with a tour, uh, a very short bus tour because we were a little bit late, traffic, but uh, a bus tour of the wheat fields because Sherman County is dominated by agriculture. Just miles and miles of wheat as far as the eye can see. And then we had a meal. So the folks from Sherman County, there were 16 of them. Um, and yeah, they had donated the meal and it was sandwiches. Um, and then we had some conversations. And yeah, so I can say more about that. But there was a moment when uh, a man named Darren, who was um, a fourth generation wheat farmer in, in Sherman County, he, he stood up and he's six foot nine. And um, as part of just explaining, you know, his reasons for voting for Trump and everything, he just kind of, but also just commenting on the situation. Here's all these city people coming to Sherman County. That never happens. And he, and he, he, he points at the plates 
of our sandwiches, the leftover crust. And he goes, if you only knew what it took to get that sandwich on your plate. And I'll never forget that moment. You couldn't hear a pin drop. I <laughs> just, oh, wow. Um, so a lot of what people remember taking away from this trip was what those of us liberal city folk were missing. We were missing reasons and considerations for people's political choices that had nothing to do with the reasons and considerations that were behind our political choices. So, you know, for many of us, uh, in particular, I talk about, I'll talk about Laura because I've told her story many times. You know, Laura was thinking about, she's, she's very passionate about LGBTQ rights. She's very passionate about the environment and climate change. And she just saw, she just saw like Trump and everything is like absolutely the wrong direction on all of these things. And she figured if people oppose what I support, they must hate what I love. Like there can be no other explanation like that. And so she sensed that in herself, but she did ask herself, well, what if I'm missing something? What, what could I be missing? And so she signed, for, signed up for the trip. She didn't know anyone else. She sat there for five hours. You know, she really wanted to know. And uh, Darren and other farmers, one of the things they shared was about something called the Waters of the United States rule. And the Waters of the United States rule is federal regulation that determines uh, federal control of, of land based on, um, on bodies of water. So if you have, uh, you know, if there's like a certain pond of a certain size on land, it kind of belongs to the government for, in these and that, those circumstances. And farmers were very concerned that that rule could be interpreted to mean that if there's a big rainstorm and suddenly there's like a pond overnight in between some hills on my land, the government could take that land. Or if there's water, enough water that forms between furrows, which is the rows of crops, then <clears throat> the government could take that land. This may sound absurd, but I started looking into it and there's actually been close calls on this. There's actually been some pretty concerning developments on this. So farmers were like, nah, I can't, I can't do that. I'm already operating on the margins. So it was economic reasons like that that led them to want to trust the businessman that they had voted in as president and really not trust Democrats who barely spent any time thinking about these concerns. And, and anyway, so Laura and others were like, oh. <laughs> now, this does not explain everybody's vote, obviously. But if we discovered that by going and getting curious about other people with other people, what else can we discover by getting curious about other people with other people? Hmm. What could I be missing? Seems to be one of the key questions that you think like we should all be asking. I, I'm not a big believer in the word should, but I would just say at this time that, you know, it sounds like something that you would encourage us toward. What could I be missing? Especially when there's something that we really don't feel clear about. Is that true? And how, how often do you use that question in your own life? How often do you find oh, yourself? Oh, what a good question. I mean, man, what a good question. I, I've tried to build mental habits and I think it's happened just because, man, you write a book about this, you think about it a lot, you know? <laughs> and I've been a journalist my whole career. So finding ways to understand people is my job. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that it's a, I'd like to think it's a pretty consistent thing, which isn't to say that I, you know, I'm constantly confronted by ideas that do not sit well with me. But if I am aware of that, if I, only if I'm aware of it, if I go, oh, wow, I had a real reaction there in my own brain that no one can see, then, then I will will my mind to be like, mm, hang on, what are you missing? What can you ask that person if there's an in-person interaction? Or going back to the article, mm, hang on, do you know a lot of people who hold this view in good faith? If you don't, there's probably a lot you're missing. Because the media is what it is, our silos are what they are, and I don't want to trust that they're giving me all the answers. So that's kind of, that's how I try to walk in the world. It's not perfect, but it, it helps me stay surprised. Nice. I like that. You know, the thing is, as you were describing the trip um, that you took, uh, it, it reminded me of that place in your book where you started talking about finding friction and spaces 
in um, places outside of your comfort zones. I'm imagining that might have been a little bit outside of your own comfort zone and outside of your silo. (laughs) And I I mean, I'm intrigued by that idea. You know, the one thing that I thought to myself is I'm... I know most of us may not invest in going to the neighboring community or, you know, to do that. And there's probably ways that we can still do it. Like there's probably ways that we can still challenge ourselves to find that friction. What would you recommend to the average person? Who, who may not be ready to take the trip five Oh, hours. yeah. No, that's... What would you recommend? Yeah. That, that's pretty out there. Like, totally. No, nobody... Yeah. How can no, we do it? <laughs> no, need to, no need to go that far. Uh, but I, I do think that despite the fact of sorting, othering, and siloing, most of us have plenty of difference in our network if, if we look closely enough. Uh, unfortunately, all those dynamics are also leading people to hide themselves... And I could give some examples of that. That's unfortunate. Uh, But it's there. You know, there's a lot of differences. So I don't know. Like the first thing I suppose would be to sort of ask yourself, like, who do I know who maybe doesn't go all the way opposing me on the thing that matters most to me? But there is an issue. I don't know. Is it abortion? Is it gun stuff? Maybe I know someone who owns a gun and is really proud of it. And I think guns are like the worst and harming everyone. Is there something like that that you know? And is that in a person with whom you already have a relationship, a relative, a friend, a colleague? And that's a a great place to start, where there's already a relationship, where there's already some trust. Chances are, maybe this has already come up before, but now the opportunity is to get curious. And a nice way to start is just to get the buy-in, you know, to say, hey, by the way, uh, you know, (laughs) <laughs> I I sense that you and I have pretty different perspectives on X. And I'm just wondering, like, you cool with me just asking you some questions about it? I'm I'm genuinely curious about how you came to that view that is so different from mine. And you'll be surprised. Like one of the one of the deepest, I think, lessons of humanity that I've learned being a journalist is that everyone wants to be seen. People love talking about themselves. <laughs> you know what I mean? If it's done in a non-condescending way, most most everyone, if there's if there's, you know, again, not too much suspicion or distrust, people people are happy to share their story. And so that's that's one of the biggest tips that I give in the book is we're tempted to ask why people believe what they believe. But the better question, uh in times of distrust is how they came to believe what they believe. Ask them to tell you a story, not to give you their defense, because it will come off like a defense because of the climate we're in. They're going to feel like they're on a stand and they're going to want to reach for like the familiar talking point that they saw work on social media once instead of what they actually believe. So, you know, instead try the how. And then they'll tell you a story and you'll find connections in the story, even if you totally disagree with the conclusion. That, you know, our stories always connect. We, we share, we, you know, we're all human. Yeah, I mean, you do say that the shortest distance between two people is a story. And um, I think of myself as a storyteller. I'm often like getting into some of the story um, in, in talking and connecting with folks. When has that made a difference for you? I mean, you, you shared a couple of examples in that, um, you know, the journey that you took. But I mean, just in everyday political discourse, when especially you're in that moment of disagreement, when has a story like really opened up the conversation? Yeah. Love to I hear mean, about that. What comes to mind immediately is... Uh, Jessica, uh, Jessica Rickledurfer Wheeler, who is, um, turns out, lives in Sherman County. She's not conservative. Uh, when we were, when we were uh, doing our trip, which we called Melting Mountains back in 2017, one of the exercises we had to just kind of gently explore our differences was we asked everybody to go to a different corner of the room based on how they voted. And one of the corners was didn't vote. And I did not expect anyone to stand there. I thought even if somebody didn't vote, no way they would stand there. And then I look 
and Jessica's there. And I didn't know who she was at the time. But I remember being like, she didn't vote? <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. Okay. You know, so so my curiosity was sparked uh, for sure at that moment. I went back to Sherman County in the fall of 2020 to follow up with folks uh, because I had so many questions. The election had just happened and, you know, I, I wanted to to see how everyone was doing and what they were thinking. And I met with Jessica and Jessica and I had kept in touch on social media. And um, we got around to talking about her politics and her identity. And I asked her, how did you come to that decision not to vote? And I share in the book what she told me, which was a really interesting story about her father being like the only Democrat uh, in town and the struggles other people had to sort of accept him. Uh, You know, a little girl who was like, oh, aren't you the Democrat? And her mother going, we don't say that, you know, stuff like that. And so Jessica growing up with this, uh, Jessica, uh, if I recall correctly, like loved Obama, really down with that. But then and she was very liberal in college. Uh, and then things started to to change for her. And she was just, there was a lot of things going on on the left that really concerned her. But she was really concerned with what was going on on the right. And she was just ugh, confounded by the whole thing. And so she she told me about having the ballot in her hands and being like, I can't stomach voting for Biden. And I cannot stomach voting for Trump. I can't. And she couldn't sleep. She couldn't do it. And so she just kind of came to the place of like, I have to not vote. I have to not vote. Uh, And so once she had finished telling me that story, I understood. I understood. I don't see myself getting to a place of not voting, but I don't know the future. You know? So... Yeah, hear, hearing her hearing her tell me about that and the agony of imagining making either choice, any of the choices, I was like, yeah, okay, I get it. You don't want agony. Who would? Wow. Thank you. And, you know, what I really enjoyed about your book was it introduced me to many new ideas and things that I was like, oh, okay. And one of them was attachments. You talk about attachments in your book and uh, you explain it around both beliefs and identity that we hold. And I was really wanting to really get into a question there because you say something about, you know, we're attached to these identities and beliefs and often there's an expectation of an attachment to an identity and belief. And that really wowed me. I was like, oh, because it, it may be that expectation that's really the thing that steps in in certain moments when maybe we would have different. Can you talk a little bit about that expectation to attach to a belief and identity and where you've seen that really? Oh, yeah. Uh, playing um, into this. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've been, there's a little thread through our conversation of humanity, right? And one of the things that we all, we all also need and crave is to belong. And we do, we find meaning in all kinds of identities. You know, they can be as relatively harmless as sports team affiliations or, you know, much more, much more personal and serious. Like I'm a Latina, you know, I'm an immigrant, whatever, whatever I am, I'm queer, I'm whatever. Um, and, and what ends up happening is there, there, there are pretty strongly formed expectations of the bundles that travel together out there. Because, well, they work a lot of the time. Uh, You know, and many social scientists have written about this. You know, if you are Black, if you are young, if you are urban, the chances that you are liberal and vote Democrat, pretty darn high. If you are very religious, if you are white, if you are older, if you are rural, the chances that you vote um, Republican, pretty high. So all of that adds up to stereotypes. We know stereotypes can get pretty darn annoying when you start to build expectations around people's behavior. I, I tell the story of my friend, my very good friend, Melina, 
Melina is black and queer and conservative. And she's here in Seattle and she deals with people's expectations all the time. You know? And, and she, she's the kind of person who, um, she's, she's built up a way of insisting on herself, even when people don't see her. And when they make assumptions about her politics, she corrects them. But the thing is, that's difficult to do. Uh, so my father, I tell a story early in the book about my dad is so not about meeting other people's expectations. That is like the last thing he'll do. I remember I made endless fun of him, me and my brother, when we were teenagers, because that man would walk around with a fanny pack and it looked ridiculous. It just, we made fun. He didn't care. He wore like shirts from forever ago. He didn't care. My mom was like, honey, you got, does not care what other people think. And he tells me a story. And this was in October, 2020 of He's a bird photographer and he walks down trails around Redmond, Washington um, at the time. And he, he sees another photographer who he recognizes from Instagram. He's never met him, but he's kind of starstruck because he takes really good bird photos. So my dad goes up and says hi and they get into a nice conversation. And this other man is hearing his, you know, thickish Mexican accent and you know, maybe saying like, oh, he's, he must be Latino or what have you. We don't know, right? We don't know exactly what was going through the person's head. But um, but the man basically, because the election was around the corner, says something very mocking of Trump in a very buddy-buddy way, in a way of like, obviously you agree, we're all on the same side here. And my dad just laughed along. And he told me that it wasn't even that he laughed along and didn't correct this man. And I could tell my dad was kind of was not happy about this. He even like, you know, agreed. He even agreed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I could tell when he told me how awful that was, you know? So there are expectations. And these things keep us from seeing each other when people feel that they cannot be honest. You know, what are they afraid of? breaking people's expectations, surprising them in an unpleasant way with their truth. So that's not great. Yeah. And I mean, you do say um, that curiosity is worthless without honesty, right? And just what you said in that moment, it also feels like there's a vulnerability that has to happen too, to tell the truth about, I am not the box that you've put me in. Um, and I know as a black identified person, I go through that. I have a, a dear friend who is also conservative and has gone through that a lot. And so talk, I would love you to talk a little bit more about that relationship with honesty and vulnerability in not only, you know, creating the ground for courageous and curious conversations, but also, you know, thinking I'm the person like your dad, you know, who in that moment didn't, you know, decided, let me not bother. Let know? me not bother being yeah, yourself. Let me not bother. You know, yeah. Where does, yeah. Tell me curiosity vulnerability and honesty. Yeah. So I, I guess I'll begin with, to me, if we are not honest together, we're not together. You know, if um, the image that just popped into my head is like, you know, when someone shows up but decides not to not to be who they are, not to not to be honest with others about who they are, it's as if they're blurred. They're half there. And we don't see that. Right. We don't see that in in-person you know, interactions, but it happens. It's happening a lot right now. Um, it's happening a lot for understandable reasons. So. That, that's, that's where that begins. And honesty is the name of, of the fifth and final part of the book. Because after all the discussion about our division and the importance of curiosity and the tactics and the tools, you know, you can't leave out the importance of, hey, if people can't be open, if they don't feel safe and right and secure and respected and seen being open, they won't be open. <laughs> they won't do it. <laughs> And all your curiosity will pull on what? What will it learn? Uh, what will they learn about you? So 
again, I was saying that, you know, in my career, I've, I've, my, my job has been always to try to allow people to let me see them so that I can then show them to their community. That's journalism. And, and I've done this in some pretty challenging circumstances, including very early in my career when I honestly was not, maybe not ready. Um, you know, I, I interviewed, uh, at a, a state prison in Texas, a man who I two weeks later watched die by execution for, for killing two cab drivers for $400 in cash. Anyway, it's so difficult. It can be so difficult for people to want to share who they truly are, what they truly think. And, you know, we talk, we talk a lot about safety, as we should. We, we talk about how can people feel safe. And so I think that a world that sees itself, which is the goal, a more curious world is one that is not too afraid to see itself, has to be, has to know what it takes to allow people to show themselves at all. And it's going to take a lot more than what we say to each other. It's the cultures we build. It's the climate in which we move. It's the assumptions that we allow to set the tone in our conversations. Several times as a journalist, I have caught myself making an assumption about someone and then something that they say will correct that assumption. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, and as soon as I know that I've made an assumption, I will tell them, you know what? You just said that. And I just realized that earlier when I asked you that other question, I just assumed you were liberal. I am so sorry. I, I'm I'm here to I'm here to see who you really are. So so you know if there's anything else that it seems like I'm missing, please tell me. You know I'll say that because I I want to reinforce that that I am not here for them to meet my expectations. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to I'm here to be curious about who they really are, and that's the kind of thing that would allow all of us, if if our culture were more curious to put our deep down honest concerns on the table, which then allows society to function better because it would address honest concerns based on people not pretending or performing, but being. You know, um, there's so much there and in, in all your answers and, and throughout this conversation, I've just, you know, had a million things go off. Uh, I think the assumptions thing is huge. And I think that if I'm honest with myself, I do it quite a bit, you know, assuming folks' political views, spiritual views, just by, you know, being in spaces with different folks and we think, oh, we're all the same. But I think the beauty of this conversation is planting a seed about how we might take a step toward um, toward really seeing the other, you know, the person across from us. And so you mentioned planting seeds in the book and, you know, I find myself benefiting from seeds that have been planted in my life, you know, whether it was in the classroom or some kind person years ago planted a seed with me and I see it blooming. So I'm wondering, um, cause I feel like this is steps we need to take and seeds we need to plant. So I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about you, the value of taking that first step or planting that first seed, because it's such a big conversation. You know, where where do we start with each other? What's, you know. Are, are you asking sort of what's the first step or how do we get yeah. seeds planted in our and mind? So uh, yeah. it's like, what's the first step? But also like knowing that we are always planting seeds. And so it may take time for us as individuals in particular to, to get to this place of this super curious conversation, but like, yeah, first step seeds, like that kind of um, thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are, I'll, what are your I'll say, there? you know, to add to, to what has already been said that one, one thing we haven't talked about is a really cool first step in all of this is just awareness of how our minds react as we walk through the world and get surprised or get irritated or get drawn in, we hardly ever stop and think about the sensations that we feel. Our language tells us that the sensations are real. That clicked with me. That tracks. 
or um, that dawned on me, the feeling of a sunrise and a new day and a new light and how that parallels with someone planted a seed, someone put a new idea in my head and all of a sudden it's a new day. I'm looking around in the hallways of my mind going, I got to look at these rooms again. I feel like they just got a new like paint color, <laughs> you know? And it's really cool. And so while I was researching the book, there were a couple months where I was journaling what I called I never thought of it that way moments. Moments where I could I would think or say I never thought of it that way. Journaling them made me more aware of them. And being aware of them gave me this extraordinary peek into how different ideas traveled through my heart and my mind. Some of them would get dug out of the ground the next day. Some of them are still there. But the coolest thing was that I could see when, when one of them resulted in a, in a shift, didn't happen often, but, a, but an actual shift, I noticed and I knew where it started. There was one point where I actually called a colleague of mine at Braver Angels, April. And I told her, April, I just have to tell you, that podcast episode we did two weeks ago on abortion, where we had, you know, two conservative women and two liberal women, and I was the liberal woman, and she was one of the conservative women. I was like, I have to tell you something you said has shifted my thinking. Not completely, like I'm, I'm pro-choice technically, yes. Not completely, but on this one thing. And she was just like, this is one of the coolest phone calls I've ever gotten. <laughs> like, what? And I said, yeah, I just wanted you to know. You know, and she wasn't trying to change my mind. She was, she just asked a question, challenging something I had just said. And her question made me listen to myself and recognize a contradiction that I hadn't seen. And that dissonance sat in my brain until it resolved itself in a new way of looking at the issue. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> Planted seeds are pretty cool. So yeah, it's observing how they grow. It's seeing, I've never said this before, but it's like the garden in your mind. Mm. Take a look at it. Mm -hmm. There's really cool stuff in there. Yeah, and I mean, those moments that you're talking about that I never thought of it that way moments. I think what you're describing of reflecting, of like noting that, I think helps us to plant the garden, plant the seeds and, and grow it. And, you know, what I take from this conversation, uh, Monica, is that this is a long game that, you know, you start somewhere and who knows, you know, how long it will take for us to get to a place maybe where we're ready to have some of these conversations, especially across the big divides, right? But it sounds like it's a long game. Would you uh, agree with that? that Absolutely. And I'll, I'll say, uh, <laughs> um, I, yeah, there's, there's a great anecdote from uh, John Powell, who is over at the Othering and Belonging Institute. Sounds like you might be familiar, but he, he talks about, he, he's all about bridging and, and how important bridging is. And he had a pastor ask him once, John, are you asking me to bridge with the devil? And, and, and John said, maybe don't start there. <laughs> it's the short bridges. It's the small bridges. And he said, and maybe after a while, you'll wonder who you're calling the devil. And it's such a powerful and wonderful way of, of, of articulating exactly that. This is a long game. You know, this is a long game. And, but, but really, these bridges they're not really connecting ideas. They're connecting people. We're not talking about bridges between ideas. We're talking about bridges between the people who hold them. That's what we're really talking about. That's what the book is ultimately really about. It's about people. Um, and people are not as scary as the ideas make them out to be. Hmm. I like that. I love that. And it's so interesting because we've had for me, my experience of this conversation has been like a phenomenal experience of just really holding some more of what you've offered. Thank you so much, Monica. I mean, I have just enjoyed our conversation. I enjoyed reading your book. I really thought to myself, if more of us, if, and I'll challenge myself to do this more, to be more curious. Um, but if we were more curious about one another, I think we could go so far as individuals, but as cultures within um, our society and as a society. And I think, you know, bigger picture, we may be able to um, see more love and more hope and compassion in the world if we were able to do this. And so, so much of what you offer tonight feels like 
tangible, something we can hold on to and take with us into our places of work and school and life. So thank you so much um, for this opportunity to talk to you tonight. It was really timely because of Hmm. some of the things that are happening in our world. That's right. It's always up for us how to be more connected. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Molly. This was one of my favorite, I think, conversations. I really, really enjoyed this. So thank you so much. Have a good night. You too. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.